Donna, if you're ready, we'll turn the kids loose. Any kids that want to head downstairs with Miss Donna, like I said, she's going to bring you down. And uh, we'll get ready to transition tonight uh, into the preaching part of the service. I am really excited to share with you this message um, that God has laid on my heart. You know, if you've been with us regularly, that uh, for the last two months or so, I've been preaching through First Timothy. And I do plan to continue that, but uh, God had other plans tonight, so I'm kind of deviating off course a little bit. We're going to be in the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament tonight. So 1 Kings chapter 17, and I'll give you a moment to find your place there. Um, it's amazing to me how God always ties what's going on in people's lives or... You know, it used to be all the time, I would never read ahead in the Sunday school lessons, and I was always amazed at how many times the Sunday school lesson um, would just be hand in hand with the message that God had put on my heart. And I know that Loretta mentioned that, um, you know, this message tonight, at least from the title of it, she doesn't know what I'm preaching on, but um, by the title of it and just a little bit that I shared, it goes in si- kind of in line with, I think, the ladies' Bible study and just... Uh, just something that I think is real practical for us tonight. So I hope and pray that by the Spirit's power and His leading, that this message will help you tonight and maybe help you to be set free from some bondage and some struggles that you may be facing. So um, I'm going to ask you, First Kings 17, if you're able, you don't have to if you can't, but if you're able, would you please stand with me one more time? Um, I think it's important that we give God reverence and honor. Any time that we're acknowledging Him, which is what we're doing when we pray, which is what we're doing when we read His Word. And so that's why I ask you to stand when I read, and I hope that, uh, I hope that you're willing to do so if you can. So 1 Kings 17 says this, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here. And turn eastward, and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Verse 7. And after a while, the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Lord Jesus, we come to you tonight now just asking you to have complete control of what comes out of my mouth. Lord God, that your word would go forth with power as we know it is, uh, that it would be life-giving and life-changing. God, we pray tonight for those that are struggling and are ashamed to admit it. Lord, that those who are in bondage and continue to try to be set free in their own strength, Uh, Lord, maybe they're even here tonight to try to check off a box on the list of good deeds to make you happy with them. I pray that they'd see tonight, Lord, that we're not here because uh, it's something that we do for you. It's something that you've given us, an opportunity to gather together as your people in worship. So, Lord, I just ask you to break the bonds that hold people enslaved tonight. I ask you, Lord, to just give us a clear vision of who you are, and what you're doing, even in difficult circumstances, Lord. Help us to understand tonight that you are truly sovereign over everything. And that means that nothing that passes into our life catches you off guard. It doesn't surprise you. It's not beyond your power. You work all things together for good. And Lord, that doesn't mean that all things are good. Because we know in this world it's filled with sin and heartache and it's cursed and it's dying. And Lord, those things aren't pleasant. 
And we know them all too well and we feel the pain of those things in our lives. And yet, Lord, there's hope beyond this life. So God, help us to look into the face of eternity and ask ourselves, are we ready? Are we ready for that time, Lord, when, when, when our life here is over? Uh, God, and do we have the hope that passes this world? And if not, may tonight be the night where someone knows for sure that they uh, have eternal life in Christ. So God, I have your way in this service, and I pray you already have, and that you're honored by what we've done here so far, and you're honored by everything we do from here on out. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to ask you, as we begin, who, who here tonight in, in, the, in our church has served in the military? Who's been in the military? I know we have several. Thank you. Thank you for your service to our country. Um, I know that while there are a few that have, the majority of us, myself included, um, have never enlisted to serve our country. It takes a special person uh, to do that, and I'm thankful that there are men and women uh, that have done that, that continue to do that for our freedoms. It, uh, it is a great sacrifice uh, and a great uh, commitment that they make, and so thank you to all that have done that. But for those of us that haven't done that for our country, if you're a child of God, you're still enlisted in an army. Um, you're enlisted in the army of the Lord. That's why I read those verses from Second Timothy as we began. I'll read them again just to refresh your mind. Um, that we are soldiers, basically, in the Lord's army. And no one that enlists in the army of the Lord gets entangled with civilian affairs because, he says, we seek to please the one who enlisted us. And so we don't have time to get caught up in worldly pursuits and worldly pleasures because we have a mission that's far greater than anything the world could offer us. And there's an urgency in this mission because folks are dying every second and going to devil's hell without Jesus. And God has left the church on earth to be his hands and feet, to be his messengers. And uh, if we don't do it, who will? Uh, in Romans, Paul says, How shall they hear if no one preaches? And how shall they hear if no one is sent? How beautiful are the feet that shed the good tidings of the gospel. And that is the call to all of us to go. And so, Jeff, uh, Sam, Larry, whoever else raised their hand. Uh, did you serve in the military? I thought I saw your hand go up too, Joe. I'm putting you in the military anyway. But for those that did, um, before, before you really ever got acclimated, there came a day where you packed up your bags and you left home. And I believe it's for eight weeks you went off to a place called what? Boot camp. Some people enjoy boot camp. They're the weird folks. The other folks just wanted to endure it and get through it. But you went to boot camp for a reason. You had to get prepared. You had to be prepared. You could never fight on the battlefield until you got prepared at boot camp. You weren't ready for the things that you were going to face until you got ready. And so I want you to keep that in mind. And as we look at our text tonight from 1 Kings and the Life of Elijah, I want to preach this message to you tonight titled, When Your Brook Runs Dry. When Your Brook Runs Dry. And I want you to think about things, especially the illustration of the boot camp. Because one of the first things, again, I'm, I'm just taking this second hand from folks that I've talked to and documentaries I've watched. I've certainly never been there. But one of the first things that happen, happens at boot camp is your self-will is stripped away. It, it's no longer about you. It's no longer about you at all. It's about your country and those men that you will serve alongside and the one that will command you. You learn at boot camp 
to follow orders without question. When an order is given by a commanding officer, you obey. No questions asked. You learn how to serve alongside of one another. And you learn how to survive by watching each other's back and doing things necessary to make it through, God forbid, those perilous times if you have to enter into combat. And so boot camp is necessary. The scripture that I read to you from 2 Timothy, that last part I want you to hone in on um, in verse 4. He says, we don't get tangled in worldly affairs, and the reason is our aim is to please the one who enlisted him. That's why we're in the Lord's army. That's why we're here. Why hasn't God called us home yet? We're here to honor and glorify him with our lives. As long as we have breath as believers, we have a duty to make Christ known among the nations and to bring him glory and honor in our lives. And as I read that verse this week, our aim is to please the one who's enlisted him. Another verse came to my mind from Hebrews 11, verse 6. If our aim is to please the one that enlisted us, in Hebrews 11:6 it says, without faith, it's impossible to please him. So our aim is to please him, yet without faith, that's impossible. And so those two things have to tie together. Our goal is to play, please him, But faith has to be the key component in leading us in a pleasing life. And so keep that in mind because we look at a man named Elijah and we see him as a prophet and a great man of God. But Elijah had many struggles. He had a lot of struggles. Would you believe if you don't know the story that Elijah, after one of the greatest victories in all of Scripture, was suicidal? He ran off into the wilderness and sat down under a tree and wanted to die. Maybe you've been there before. Maybe things have gotten so bad you have gotten to a place where you wonder if life is even worth living any longer. Maybe you're there tonight. Maybe the weight of the world is so heavy on you that you just feel like giving up completely and saying, I just would rather be out of here than to endure another day in this life. You're not alone. The strongest of men in the Bible face that. And so I want you to know there's no shame to have those feelings. But you don't have to stay there. The enemy wants you to stay in that place. He wanted Elijah to stay under that juniper tree until he took his life. But God encouraged him. And I pray he encourages you tonight through his word too. Elijah in verse 1 just pops onto the scene. We have no introduction really of him. All of a sudden we just see in verse 1 Elijah the Tishbite as he's known by. And yet it's amazing to me that by the end of chapter 17 and verse 24, he's Elijah, the man of God. He had to go through boot camp to transfer from just an unknown guy named Elijah the Tishbite to the man of God. And if you ever really want to be a true soldier that does some good in God's army, you're going to have to endure the boot camp. You're going to have to go through some hard times. God's going to have to strip away all the stuff of the world that's holding you back. The biggest obstacle is yourself. It is. The biggest obstacle is ourselves. We often blame other folks and other people. We're our own worst enemy. And when God gets us out of the way, He'll do some amazing things. But He's got to get us humbled, and then He'll exalt us. Right? And so, He comes from obscurity into probably one of the most difficult times in the nation of Israel's history. So Elijah 
is ministering to the northern kingdom because Israel is split now. It's been 58 years since King Solomon reigned, and that was the last time there was really peace and unity in Israel. After um, Solomon dies, the kingdom is divided. Jeroboam and Rehoboam have a quarrel over who's going to be king, and so Jeroboam takes ten tribes to the north, Rehoboam takes two tribes to the south, and the nation of Israel has been divided ever since. Um, and during those 58 years, the northern kingdom, Israel, where Elijah is at, has had ten kings in 58 years, and successively they get worse. So that by the time Elijah comes on the scene, the man in power is named Ahab. And his wife's name is Jezebel, a name that we still hear used today because of her wickedness, right? Ahab was bad, but Jezebel wore the pants in the family, so to speak. She was the one that really was controlling things. But Ahab willingly and gladly followed her evil and wicked lead. So here is Elijah out of obscurity standing before the most wicked king in Israel's history and saying, there's not going to be any rain. Based on the God's word, I'm telling you, there'll be no rain in Israel. And then immediately after he pronounces this judgment on Israel because of their wickedness and following these evil kings for all these years, God immediately takes him away and puts him out in obscurity again. He takes him beyond the Jordan River um, to a little brook named Cherith, and he says, you're going to hide there. That word, Cherith, that name literally means to be cut off. And he is cut off. He's cut off from his people. He's cut off from the prophets. He's all by himself. It's just him and God out in the wilderness. And yet in that time, in that season, God is going to show his faithfulness. He's going to take care of him. But he had to hide Elijah for a little while. He had to have some private time with Elijah. And I want to ask you tonight, if you're struggling with things, how much time privately do you devote to God? Because I can usually tell a person how much trouble they're having or how, how good things are going based on their private, personal relationships with God outside of this place. If, if the only time you spend with God is here, I would venture a guess to say that things spiritually for you aren't at a high point right now. Because it doesn't matter that you gather here primarily. It matters what your life looks like when you leave here. I, I, the church is to equip you. I, I am to feed you and minister to you for one hour. But as we talk about whether it's your children or you yourself, there's 167 other hours in the rest of the week. And if you're not feeding yourself in private time of prayer and devotion to the Word of God you're going to struggle. And so God gets Elijah alone to teach him that there has to be some private time. It's not just about public ministry all the time. I'm thankful when we go out and do public ministry because that's a big part of the church's duty. But you've got to have that private, hidden time with God. How much of that do you have? If not a lot, then tonight I pray that you would sincerely pray that God would change that in your life. It doesn't have to, don't set a goal so high so to begin with that you fall short and get discouraged. It may just be five minutes a day, but that's better than nothing. So begin somewhere. But work on that private time with God. And you will see Him provide as you get along with Him. Elijah saw it. We see in verses 4 through 6 that God called him into a private place. But in that private place, He's providing for him. I think a lot of you probably know the story of Zacchaeus. 
If nothing else, you've heard the song, the kids' song, Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he, right? I'm not the only one that knows that song, am I? He climbed up in the sycamore tree, sang at church for the Lord he wanted to see. Now, you don't have to sing it, but you know the story. Um, it's a really good story in the Gospel of Luke. But I saw a quote, I've seen this quote many times in a long time back, but it's always stuck with me, and it goes like this. Long before Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus, the tree was planted to meet his need. Amen. Think about that. That big full-grown sycamore tree that Zacchaeus used to climb up so he could get a glimpse of Jesus, that thing was growing many, many years, probably before Zacchaeus was even alive. God had put that there, and on a specific day and time, it was going to be used to minister to Zacchaeus. And I see the same thing with our story of Elijah. When God formed the worlds, and when he carved out the streams and the oceans, with his finger he made that brook, Cherith. And long before Elijah would ever go and sit next to that thing, God had it prepared. Maybe not just for him, but it was there for him. And so when God leads you to a place, and you don't know what he's doing, just understand that he knows the beginning from the end. That he knows much more than we do. His ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. And you don't ever have to be concerned if God's led you somewhere that he is wrong or that he's confused or he doesn't know what he's doing. He's got you right where you need to be regardless of what it looks like on the outside. And so trust him. Because remember, the goal of the soldier that enlists in the army is to please him. But without faith, it's impossible to do so. So if you signed up for God's army, just like when you signed up in the army, you didn't know where you were going to end up. When you left boot camp, wherever they were sending you, buddy, that's where you were going, right? And you just had to trust that when you got there that they would have the provisions ready and you would have commanding officers there and they would tell you what to do and when to eat and when to wake up, when to go to bed, and they were going to direct you. You just had to be willing to follow them. And the same thing is true with God. I can't tell you where he's going to take you. You have an opportunity to go and serve him wherever that is. But you've got to walk by faith. He's God and we're not. We don't get to tell him. But too often we do and then we wonder why our life doesn't work out. Listen, taking the comfortable path doesn't always equal the best path. We always look for the, the easiest way to go. And that can, that can sometimes bring us relief temporarily, but it never fulfills us spiritually. Because it's not where God wants us. It's just not. Uh, I know I can speak for our family that there were a lot of easier options over the last few years of what we could have done, but it wasn't where God wanted me. And so, you know, I chose the difficult path in faith, faith instead of the easy path in the flesh. And so far, he's never failed me, and I don't believe he ever will. All right? That doesn't mean that I haven't had my seasons of doubt and discouragement. It doesn't mean that I haven't been angry at him. It doesn't mean I haven't wondered where we're going and why we're going the way we're going, right? And so if you're in that place tonight again, you're not alone. I don't think anyone in this room, if we're honest, would say we haven't been there or are there, Amen. right? It's, it's okay. Um, we all have needs, don't we? All of us have needs. And so here, here's the thing. With the needs, when a need presents itself... So do doubts. So do doubts. If we're honest, when needs come up, we have doubts. How, how are we going to meet this need? How, how will I pay this bill? How can I do this thing that God's called me to? In, in the scripture, uh, Philippians 4.19, it 
The Bible says, My God will meet all your needs according to the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. God will meet all my needs. And so we just admitted we all have needs. And the Bible says that God will meet those needs. And yet I can guarantee when needs come up, we, we have our doubts. And we have our fears, don't we? And so when we read Philippians 4.19, that's not just a blank check, church. Because a lot of times people will just pull a verse out and say, well, God's going to meet it, just don't worry. And he can, and he will. But I'm not going to give you a verse and build up your hopes without giving you the context of that verse. And so um, when we think about Philippians, I'm going to flip to that real quick because I want you to see exactly what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, it's not just that God hands out a blank check to folks because that wasn't the case for the church in Philippi. If we go back to verse 15 in that text, he says there, You Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. See that? He said, when I left Macedonia, there was a great need. The Macedonian church was poor. Jerusalem was having a famine. Macedonia stepped up, even though they didn't have anything to give. They gave above and beyond even what they had. There were wealthy churches that wouldn't give. And Paul said, you know, nobody would enter into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you and Philippi. In verse 16 he says, Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And then we come to verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Why did Paul say that in verse 19? Because the Philippian church had stepped up and obeyed and gave beyond what they had, so that now they had a need. They had enough stuff to take care of themselves, and rather than being comfortable and saying, well, we've got things for us, sorry about your luck over there, they gave away all their stuff. So now they had a need because they gave. And Paul says, don't worry, you were faithful, you were obedient, you blessed those that really were in struggles, and so God will take care of your need. It's not just a blank check that God will supply our needs. It's that when we are obedient to Him, when we're faithful to Him, when things run short, when our, when our struggles get difficult because we're serving Him, when we wonder, God, I'm doing everything I can to try to do what's right, I'm trying to be obedient, and everything's getting worse, God will supply your every need. But you can't just sit back and say, God, lay it on me. I'm not willing to give, I'm not willing to serve, I'm not willing to obey, I'm not willing to sacrifice, I'm not willing to surrender, but I expect you to pour it on me. That's not how it works. That's just not how it works. Without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Don't get entangled with the things of the world. You can't chase after the world and expect God to bless you. But when you'll stop running and surrender, and you'll start trusting and obeying, you will see God move on your behalf, because He's promised to do so. He's promised to do so. Their faith and their obedience was blessed by God. It always is. And look at our text. You see the same thing. In verse 5, God, God told him, go to the book. In verse 5, it says, He went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the book. And in verse 6, what happened? The ravens brought him bread, morning and evening. He went and did. God supplied his needs. See how that works? It always works that way. 
But faith is the key that unlocks the door. You have to be willing to trust God. And many of our struggles come because we're not willing to take him at his word. We operate so much by sight and by feelings and by experience. And that's not what the Bible calls us to live by. We live and breathe by every word in this book. Even when it makes no sense, even when our feelings say, "Uh uh-uh. Even when our wants are different, we have to be willing to trust him. And I'm telling you that's hard, but it's always right. And so I really wanted to get to verse 7, because that's what's grabbed my heart this week. And that's what I really want to share with you tonight. It just says at the beginning of that verse, after a while, the brook dried up. And I'm going to tell you something, if you don't know it, if you're a newer Christian, you're going to find this out. If you walk with God long enough, there's going to come a season when your brook dries up and the ravens stop feeding you. There's going to be. And maybe you're there. Because I can tell you this, the God who provides the water can withhold the water. The God who provides the water can withhold the water. Read Job. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, is what Job said, when he lost everything. That's not easy. I'm not saying you should be in that place tonight, but I hope and pray that you can get to that place. Because the Lord does give, and the Lord does take away. But He's always good. He's always right. He's always holy. And He's always higher than our ways, and His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And so, here's again the problem. The needs arise, and so do the doubts, right? And when God takes away we start to get angry. That was mine. My loved one was mine. That stuff was mine. That job was mine. And you took it. You took them from me. And I'm angry. Can I tell you something? Anger always stems from pain. I'm going to say that again. And write it down. Anger always stems from pain. Behind any action of anger is a hurt. Always. Always. And if you're angry at God tonight, it's from a broken heart. And He knows that. He knows that. And again, I've been there. And I'm sure that you've been there. And maybe you're there tonight. But I believe that there's a lesson for us, and I want you to see this, and I hope it helps you. Why would God do that? Why would he dry up the brook after he told Elijah to go there and he'd take care of him? I believe that all through Scripture, we see God doing things like this for one reason, and it's this. Because it's easy for us to trust the brook more than it is to trust God. If we're not careful, we'll love the gifts more than the giver. We will. It's our nature. And one of the greatest sins that we never recognize in ourselves is idolatry. And that doesn't mean you've got a little wooden statue on your mantle at home that you worship. Idolatry is anything that you put before God. And it's so subtle and it's so deceitful that we all have idols and we don't even know it. John Calvin said that the heart is an idol factory. And I think that's a great way of looking at it. Because it really is the truth. Kyle Eidelman, who is, a lot of people think he's the lead pastor because he's done so many Um, Bible studies. He's actually just an assistant pastor at a big church in Louisville. Um, But he did a study, and I'm trying to remember, um, 
uh, not a fan. It's probably his most famous one. He's done a lot of other ones. But um, he said this. He said, what you are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning the war in your heart. What you are searching for and chasing after reveals the God that is winning the war in your heart. And here's where that becomes so diff- difficult for us as human beings. I think if I told you that there's a difference between the gift and the giver, between God and what he provides, I think all of you would say, well, common sense, yes, we understand that, right? There's a difference between God himself and what he provides for us. But what makes it so hard is we're human beings. And so we experience love through people's actions and even through their gifts, right? So let's, it's getting close to Christmas, right? It'll be here for, you know, 11, can you believe 11 weekends? I think I just saw until Christmas. That's hard to, when you think about that. I don't even want to think about it, right? Because the store started three months ago for Christmas. But 11 weekends, so some of you are like, oh, I got to start shopping already. But here's the thing, you know, on Christmas morning, if you had a beautiful gift that your loved one gave you under the tree and you opened it up and you tossed it in the trash and said, I don't, I don't care about the gift, I just love you. That person would probably be pretty hurt, right? Because the gift is an expression of their love. We, we understand that they're more valuable than the things under the tree. But they show their love and affection through their gifts. And so when we relate to God, we see his love and affection for us through the things he provides. And many things that we just take for granted, right? The air we breathe and the, sh- the shelter that we have and the health that we have. God's provided all that stuff, and so it's easy to take those gifts for granted, but a lot of times the bigger tangible things that our hearts run after as idols, uh, those things can pull at us. And when they do, the problem is the gift then becomes an alternative to the giver, and then it, then it becomes an idol. We can recognize God and be thankful for everything he provides, but when we begin to neglect God for the things he provides, right? whether that's our kids, our spouse, our jobs, our hobbies, when we start to let those good things become God things, we have replaced him. When good things become God things, we've replaced him. And so we have to always guard our hearts to understand that God will sometimes dry up the brook to show us that he is more valuable than anything he provides. And I love what John Piper said. He said, God uses pleasure and pain to provide us with revelations of his goodness and protect us from loving substitutes. He says he uses a mixture. He brings pleasures into our life in order that we might know him through those. And he brings pain into our life in order to show us that he is more important than the things. He gave Elijah the brook to show his love and faithfulness. And he removed the brook to show that he's greater than that water. That was just a temporary stream, but Christ is the living water. And he is something far greater than anything that we could ever take in temporarily through this life. He is the one that will spring up in us a fountain of life, giving water to others. And so I want you to see as we wrap up the idea that God does give and God does take away. And they're all good things from his wise and sovereign counsel. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul warns there, As for the rich in this present age, charge them to not be haughty, nor set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Listen to what he says. Set your hope on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So there you go. 
God gives us things to enjoy. You don't have to feel guilty for having things. The love of money is the root of all evil. But money itself isn't evil. You know, oftentimes we take things to extremes. So we think we need to be completely impoverished because that's a sign that we have given away everything and we're living for God. And sometimes we feel guilty if we have a little extra because we think, oh, I shouldn't have anything. Listen, it's not wrong to have stuff as long as stuff doesn't have you. Right? Don't let the things consume you. It's not about that. God gives us things to enjoy, but enjoy them in moderation and enjoy him for enjoy them for his glory. But then the flip side of that, Philippians 3, 8, Paul said, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus my Lord. He said, For this sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or as dung in order that I may gain Christ. It's nothing wrong to have things. But Paul said, I could throw them all away as long as I have Christ. And that's ultimately the attitude that we have to have because God can dry up your brook. And if you're in that place tonight and you're angry with him, and you're hurting, which is where that anger comes from. He gets it. He understands. He knows your struggles. He knows your doubts. He knows your fears. And He wants to deliver you from those things. He didn't give you that spirit of fear. Not a bit. He says, Be anxious for nothing, but in all things by prayer and supplications. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and minds. That's what He says. That's a promise. I don't care how you feel. That's what... The Almighty God Himself has said. Will you trust Him? You're a soldier in His army. You're here to glorify Him. But without faith, you can't please Him. And I know where you're at tonight may be difficult. And I know you're hurting and I know you're struggling. But listen to me. Until you turn to Him in faith and say, God, I'm going to praise you in this storm. I'm going to trust you where I'm at. I'm going to walk with you no matter where we go. I'm going to believe that you are good. Because I know you. And I know what you've done for me in the past. And you proved on the cross that you're for me. And you're not against me. And you proved on the cross your love that while I was yet a sinner, you died for me. And you proved on the cross that you came to seek and save that which was lost. And you proved that you know the very hairs on my head. And that you love me with an unending eternal love. And I'm going to trust you. Because God is good. Regardless of circumstances. Why did that book dry up, church? Elijah prayed for it too. If we go all the way back to the beginning of our text, and I didn't go to Ahab and say it's not going to rain. When it doesn't rain, guess what? Things dry up. We've experienced that this summer, haven't we? James 5.17 says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. He was right in the middle of God's will. He prayed, God answered that prayer. Elijah, Elijah was right there where God wanted him to be. And the brook still dried up. But, when the brook dried up, when that little stream got smaller and smaller until there was finally no more water, Elijah, I'm sure, wondered what was going on. He probably questioned and was scared. God said, you know what? It's time to move. I'm going to take you somewhere else. And he took him somewhere else. And guess what? It was difficult too. He took him to a widow in Zarephath who had nothing. They had one last little bit of food they were going to eat and then her and her son were going to die. And God provided every day. The oil never ran out and the flour never ran out. But again, it took faith. It took faith. But God had something better for him. I asked you when you came in to hold on to your fork. A lot of you have probably heard this story. 
I saw it many times, but I saw it again this week, and I thought it was really good. We went out, matter of fact, I think it was last Sunday to breakfast at Frisch's. And, you know, if you eat at Frisch's and you get the buffet, when you clean out that first plate and they come to pick it up, what do they say to you? You want to keep your fork? Do you want to keep your fork? Why do they say that? Because there's more to come, right? There was a story of a lady who was terminally ill, and she was getting her funeral preparations together. And the pastor came over, and they got everything ready, and finally she said, I've got one more request. She said, when I'm in that casket, when I'm laid out, I want you to put a fork in my hand. And he said, why in the world would you want a fork in your hand? And he said, because I want, she said, I want people to know that the best was yet to come. See, when we have a meal and we eat the main course, she said, when they clear off the plates, we keep our fork because dessert's coming. And she said, I want people to know when they see that fork in my hand that, yeah, I'm done here, but the best was yet to come. And church, when you think about that tonight, when you look at that fork, keep it somewhere, and when you're struggling, when this life gets overwhelmingly heavy, just remember that we have a promise. We have a hope that goes beyond this life. And no matter how hard and how difficult it gets, something better is coming for us. We sang Glorious Day, and that's not just a pretty song. It's a truth. You know, living He loved us, dying He saved us, and buried He carried our sins far away, and rising He justifies freely forever, and one day He is coming. Are you ready for that day when He comes back? If you're not, the worship team is going to come tonight, and we're going to sing a song of invitation. And that's simply an opportunity for you to come. If you don't know Jesus Christ, then tonight is the night for you to come. Let me pray with you and show you in the Scriptures how you can be saved. And if you are here tonight and your brook is dried up, and you're angry at God, and you're struggling to know where to go and where to turn, please come and lay that down tonight and trust Him. If you don't have faith, ask Him to give it to you. Ask Him to give you faith to believe. Because He will and He can. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank You tonight for the glorious truth of the Word of God that we've heard. And Lord, now I pray tonight that your Spirit would draw those that are struggling, God, that are hurting, that are questioning, that are doubting. God, break those bonds. Loretta said it all night long. There are people in here struggling. And I pray that the devil would be shook free from them, that there would be no more shame and no more guilt, that they would come and admit their struggles, admit their fears, confess it, let it be a testimony of the goodness of God as they leave here changed and new in Christ. And we're going to praise you tonight, God, for what you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. As we stand, as we sing, church, do you need to come? Don't wait.